KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back to another edition of the KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Zombie! Halloween is almost upon us, and that gives me the perfect excuse to do another podcast on zombies. Last year, I spoke with the doctor of the dead, Arnold T. Blumberg, about the self-aware zombie. You know, the ones that are dead and knew it. This year, I'm speaking with him again, but this time we'll be talking about zombies for humanity. And that's right, zombie films that have a social conscience, because the best zombie films have never really been just about zombies. They've always been about us and about social issues that plague us. So let me welcome my guest back to the show, Professor Arnold T. Blumberg of University of Baltimore. Arnold, how are you doing? Doing okay. Thanks so much for having me back. Sure. Well, you know, an annual visit with the Doctor of the Dead, I think, is something that we all need. (laughs) I think so. I have to agree. All right. Before we start discussing films... I want to play a short bite from an interview I did in 2008 at the first annual World Zombie Day Walk here in San Diego. It was a walk to collect canned food and raise awareness about world hunger. Uh, It was a program started by It's Alive in George Romero's hometown of Pittsburgh. And Romero is a name that's going to be coming up a lot during this discussion. But Jennifer Muskies organized the walk in San Diego, and I asked her why zombies make good activists for a cause. Because we care. Zombies have big hearts. We may not have brains, but we have big hearts. So, you know, zombies are always hungry, so we thought it'd be kind of cool to, like, bring the whole, you know, zombies, you know, hungry, looking for human flesh kind of thing to, well, zombies don't need real food, so we're donating our real food to people who do need real food. So, Arnold, do you agree with that? Well, I certainly think so, as long as we're talking in the real world about the fans of zombie cinema. I think there are a lot of people out there that are drawn to it, not just because they love the, the action, and, and obviously there are fans of horror that love guts and gore and that kind of thing, but it's because it has a lot to say, and we're communicating with each other culturally when we're doing all these kind of things, making movies, doing TV shows, and zombie stories, well, they, they quite literally sometimes cut right to the heart of what we're thinking about. Zombie movies and zombie fans both seem interested in social issues. So I think this is a good starting point for our discussion because zombie films, more than any other group or subdivision of horror, have consistently over the decades returned to themes of social issues, be it racism, classism, or that very fundamental question of what makes us human. And the man most responsible for this is George A. Romero, who I think we can credit as the father of the modern zombie film and most of its mythology. George Romero, I think, is a good starting point about Zombies for Humanity. His first film was in 1968, Night of the Living Dead. This is the latest disclosure in a report from National Civil Defense Headquarters in Washington. It has been established that persons who have recently died have been returning to life and committing acts of murder. A widespread investigation of reports from funeral homes, morgues, and hospitals has concluded that the unburied dead are coming back to life and seeking human victims. It's hard for us here to believe what we're reporting to you, but it does seem to be a fact. 
a little more than a week ago, I was up in Evan City, the home of Night of the Living Dead, where every year they have a Living Dead weekend, uh, and they reunite a lot of people. A Striner was there, played Johnny in Night of the Living Dead, John Russo, who you know is the co-creator of the film with George. And it's just a huge festival that happens, and the, the local community seems to have really embraced their role in creating this bit of film history. But that's the movie that starts the very idea ultimately, that we must be looking for some sort of meaning in the genre. It's that movie that really drew so many people like myself, like you, like so many others out there, to looking deeper, and then realizing that it had always been there in many ways beforehand with the earlier, very different kind of zombie stories. But Night of the Living Dead, like you said, it's really where it all begins, and it's where our modern conception of this creature comes from. Well, I had a chance to interview George Romero when he made Diary of the Dead, and here's what he had to say about his films. My films are more about what's happening today, in, in my, my view of what's happening today. Shopping Mall inspired that one. The Day of the Dead was about, you know, mistrust and people holding up and just completely losing trust in each other. Land is, you know, about... So, Arnold, if we look back to 1968 and Night of the Living Dead, how conscious do you think Romero was about using the zombies to make a social commentary? Do you think that was something forefront in his mind at the time of that first film he made? I, I doubt it sincerely. <laughs> <laughs> I say I, I don't think so. And, I, and I, I think the you know fans will tend to say, oh, what are you talking about? Of course he meant these kind of things. But I think you can give them a great deal of credit, everyone involved, with crafting a movie that not only instantly captured the public consciousness, but became so much uh, a benchmark for using the genre to make a statement and still say that they didn't intend to do it. I mean, they when they were getting together, they wanted to make a successful, uh, nice little horror movie, get it out there. Yes, maybe they might have had a glimmer of an idea here or there, like to have it have some sort of resonance or meaning, but the depth to which we all now look back at that movie and see how it captures the Vietnam era, the era of racial unrest and the casting of Dwayne Jones and what a significant thing that really wound up being for the history of cinema and for race in film, there's no way they could have thought of all of that. But what's fun is also, if you go back and read interviews, where it goes year by year, and like early interviews, you know, it's like, do you ever think about this? And George's like, no, we're just trying to make a movie, and go five years later, do you ever think of this? Well, maybe I thought of a little bit. <laughs> go 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I guess we did kind of think of it. I mean, basically the idea is when people are telling you you're a genius, you've got to sort of own it. So I think they've embraced the idea that this is what they meant. But I don't believe that was a conscious thing, but I do believe that it did a, an amazing job of, capturing a moment uh, in American history and culture, and certainly by the time they revisited the idea, they were very conscious of what they were doing. Well, you brought up Dwayne Jones, who plays the lead character, and he was an African-American. The role was initially written for a white actor. Uh, George Romero decided to go with him and made the very conscious decision of not changing the script to reflect the the change in the ethnicity of the actor he had cast. So whether or not he intended the film to be socially conscious or not, does that detract in any way from the final film? The presence of Dwayne Jones is, I think, the central reason why the movie stands the test of time. I mean, everybody in it does the best they can, some better than others. It's a good group. It's certainly a movie that clearly can be watched again and again. But really when it comes down to it, Dwayne Jones is the central performance in that film. 
He's just he's lightning in a bottle, casting somebody like that. And you're right. The beauty of it is the movie doesn't seem to be aware of the color of his skin, mm-hmm. as it should be, really. But what's also interesting is that he did significantly change the character as it was written on the page because the sort of backwoods-talking kind of white trucker character that it was going to be was certainly not Dwayne Jones. So it, I, I would say it's, it's nothing but uh, an addition in so many ways to the impact of the film. He's, he's, the, he's the main reason why we're still talking about it all these years later. If you're stupid enough to go die in that trap, that's your business. However, I am not stupid enough to follow you. It is tough for the kid that old man is so stupid. Now, you get the hell down in the cellar. You can be the boss down there. I'm boss up here. What's kind of significant about it is the way Romero reacted to his casting and the decision because another director writer might have said like okay we need to revise the script and he just moved ahead saying like okay we're putting him in and we can just move forward with the script and so even though he may not have intended to make a social statement it just seems like the type of person he was was the type of person that allowed him to react to that creative change in the way that he did. Absolutely. As I've taught and talked about elsewhere, it's the fact that the movie is blind to it, and particularly things like, for instance, the character Harry Cooper, who has all these clashes with Ben in the film. How are we supposed to know what was going on? Could have been those things for all we knew. That girl was screaming. Sure, you must know what a girl screaming sounds like. Those things don't make any noise. Anybody would know somebody ever needed help. We thought we could hear screams, but... For all we knew, that could have meant those things were in the house afterward. And you wouldn't come up and help. The racket sounded like the place was being ripped apart. How were we supposed to know what was going on? Now, wait a minute. You just got finished saying you couldn't hear from down there. Now you say it sounded like the place was being ripped apart. It would be nice if you'd get your story straight, man. All right, now you tell me. I'm not going to take that kind of a chance when we got a safe place. We luck into a safe place, and you're telling us we got to risk our lives just because somebody might need help, huh? He's a character that you wouldn't uh, be the least bit surprised would be racist or would use the fact that Ben is black in that situation. But because the script doesn't have it, because they had no intention of doing that, because they didn't even think about that, that's not in there. And you can argue, yes, it's subtext. You can look for that and say, well, it's probably under there somewhere. But it's never addressed directly. And there's such a great deal of respect given to just Dwayne Jones's presence in the movie. And of course, as I said, you know, you're talking about 1968, it comes out, Mm -hmm. Martin Luther King's assassinated, Robert Kennedy's assassinated, the newspapers are filled with all the unrest at home and abroad, and to have a black man as the central heroic figure in this story of, you know, the American family melting down and everything falling apart is such a huge statement that it doesn't matter what the intention was. It, what matters is that it's there, and people definitely picked up on it as soon as the film was out. I want to play a little bit more of my 2008 interview with Romero since he addresses the social commentary in his films and how he resisted making another zombie film for 10 years. I was working on my third film when suddenly the French discovered The Night of the Living Dead and began calling it Essential American Cinema. And I'm going, all right, man. I mean, I didn't know how to make a movie. I mean, all I saw were the mistakes in it. And then I got, I almost froze up. I said, Christ, if I'm going to do a sequel or another one, I'm going to have to be as 
socially conscious, and it became an obsession. And I and so I waited until I sort of got an idea. The second film I made was in a about in a shopping mall. People hold up in a shopping mall, and I had I met the people socially who had developed this first big indoor temple to consumerism in Western Pennsylvania, and it gave me the idea. And then I was trying to be as conscious as I could, but it was I was I realized I was doing it without innocence. And halfway through that production, I sort of shifted gears and said, wait a minute, I can, I can really have fun with this and try to make it reflective of the times and try to make a comment that doesn't sort of take over the thrill ride part of the film. And that, that's really when I, I developed this sort of conceit. Arnold, Dawn of the Dead is the Romero film that you wanted to make sure we discussed on this show, talking about Zombies for Humanity. What is it about Dawn of the Dead that makes it the film that you want to make sure we talk about? Well, as any zombie fan listening would know, in a way, it's just it, it's kind of a, a cheap move on my part. <laughs> it's, the, it's the simplest choice, really, because it's, it's the movie that basically established the very concept that this genre is one that must make a social statement. And the difference here is, as we just discussed, Night of the Living Dead may or may not have had some intention behind it in that way, but it certainly had an impact. As we've seen with, with George Romero, the idea was waiting to find an idea, you know, waiting for a while to make this film. When Dawn of the Dead came together, there was very much the conscious intention, well, now people are going to expect us to say something. So what are we going to say? And the beauty of that film, at least one part of it, is that it came along at precisely the right time to find what is arguably the most perfect social, cultural metaphor to tie to the zombie genre that you could possibly hope for, which is the rise in rampant, mindless consumerism across the country. What the hell is it? Looks like a shopping center. One of those big indoor malls. And the idea that the malls were just coming in, the enclosed malls were just becoming a cultural thing, and Romero said, that's it, we're doing this, zombies in a mall. And everything about just that basic premise is exactly the reason why, to this day, we're still talking about, well, it's a zombie story, it must mean something. Because Dawn of the Dead set that standard, and people have come to expect that level of conscious thought from any zombie story they encounter. Let's hear a scene from Dawn of the Dead as the characters find themselves in this shopping mall. zombie apocalypse and finding yourself in a shopping mall, it offers you a number of things. It's an enclosed mall, so it offers you a kind of a safety zone, but also they find themselves free to roam around the mall and help themselves to the products in all these stores. So it's like the American dream. Yes. Oh, absolutely. And of course, the idea ultimately throughout the whole film is that it's a horrible sort of depressing perversion of what people were thinking was the American dream. You know, we're being driven to buy, buy, buy. You know, you'll be happier if you just have more things. What are they doing? Why do they come here? Some kind of instinct, memory, what they used to do. This was an important place in their lives. And here they are in this place where they have access to everything, no competition from anyone else. Once they 
clean out the zombies, so to speak. They they set up house for a while. Probably the the darkest part of the movie in some respects is not any scene with zombies, but the part where we see that they've reached a point where they've become so completely uh, static in their behavior in playing house that they are ceasing to have any kind of desire to live or to have any identity. And of course, that's perfect right there is the idea that, uh, that, that gets explored in so many zombie stories. We are them, they are us. The idea that the true evil is usually the living person next to you and not the creature outside. And the idea that ultimately we are all zombies in one way or another. And it's that moment in the film where they realize, oh, we got to get out of here because all we're doing is sitting around every day, flipping on the television, eating some food, and waiting for the next day. And really, when you think about it, that's what they're saying Americans are doing. This is what we're doing. We're not living. We're just consuming. And it was just, a, as I said, it was a perfect metaphor. Well, and I think that point you're talking about, the characters, especially the, the woman, almost looks like a mannequin at certain yes. points. She's put on these clothes from these stores and kind of dolled herself up, and she looks as lifeless <laughs> as some of those mannequins do. That's right. And uh, and she also has the uh, relationship with uh, Flyboy in that, and uh, there's also the scene where he decides, well, you know, I, I might as well propose we're having a baby, and she turns him down. As I often joke, you know, if you can't, if you're the last man on earth and you can't get the last girl... You know, something is seriously wrong. But they're so much broken in their lives and in their relationships. There's a lot of really intense gender politics at work in that movie, too, with the character of Fran. She's pregnant. There's an entire discussion in the movie at one point with two men in a room discussing whether or not they should uh, do an abortion. You want to get rid of it? Huh? Do you want to abort it? It's not too late. And I know how. While she is awake and aware and listening from the other room and completely unable and unwelcome to uh, be a part of that discussion. And she also spends time in the film trying to assert herself and say, I want a gun. May I say something? Sure. Sorry you found out I'm pregnant because I don't want to be treated any differently than you treat each other. And I'm not going to be done, mother, for you guys. I want to know what's going on, and I want to have something to say about the plans. There's four of us, okay? Fair enough. Okay, now what's going on? We're going out, and you're not coming with us. And you won't come with us until you learn how to handle yourself. That means learn to shoot and learn to fight. Something else. I don't know about you two, but I want to learn how to fly that helicopter. If anything happens to you, we have to be able to fly out of here. She's right, man. There are things starting to shift and change in the position of women in stories like this and in American culture in general, and that's just one of the many threads in Dawn of the Dead that is a fascinating one to look at. You brought up this idea of, you know, we are the zombies, the zombies are us, and one of the things about these zombies is they are coming back to the mall. It's like a mecca for them. And the human characters contemplate, like, why are they coming back here? And you get this sense that it's maybe not part of their DNA, but they have it somehow 
built into them that this is someplace they need to go back to. And it's because we've been programmed to believe that. So there's also that undercurrent there that we are subject to so many messages and manipulations in the way we consume media that that in and of itself has programmed our behavior. It's not choices we would make individually, but it's choices that have been made for us. And what's interesting about that is there it is in Dawn of the Dead in the 70s, but that's the very kind of thing that I explore in like media literacy classes in 2016 is that particularly in an era today where we walk around with smartphones in our pockets and devices of all kinds, we're awash in media messages. There's another great thread in Dawn of the Dead, which is, you know, yes, they're coming back to the mall, but is that because they were already zombies? They were already programmed. And that image we have of people just reporting to the mall like it's something you have to do and trudging up and down and window shopping and buying things, that is just that that, that perfect image that, meshes with the idea of the living dead. Well, and also it gives us this kind of sad, tragic sense of even after we die, (laughs) we still (laughs) have that stuff programmed in us. It doesn't end there. (laughs) That's right. Still got to get to the mall. Romero's Dawn of the Dead really has this satiric bent to it where, you know, it's not just comedy, but it definitely has this biting edge to it. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It has tongue firmly in cheek, so to speak. And although there are people that, you know, as much as we're fans, will certainly be willing to point out, well, look, the effects are not the best. Tom Savini, who's a makeup and special effects genius, has often gone on record as saying that he thinks Day of the Dead is his masterpiece, and I still maintain, I think it's some of the most effective practical Mm -hmm. effects ever. But certainly Dawn has its problems. The blue-faced zombies, the fact that people seem to be made out of foam and can be bitten huge chunks of foam... But in a way, I would say that even adds to that satiric quality that you're talking about. There's an element of unreality, of sort of cartoonishness to some of it, that maybe it only came along years later when we look back, but I think it really enhances that feeling that there's sort of a parody of the real world going on here. So I I don't think it uh, takes away from it at all. All right, this isn't really part of the social consciousness of this film, but this film has my absolute favorite explanation of why the dead are walking the earth. What the hell are they? They're us, that's all. There's no more room in hell. What? Something my granddaddy used to tell us. You know Makumbo? Voodoo. Granddad was a priest in Trinidad. Used to tell us, when there's no more room in hell, the dead will walk there. Okay, that's my absolute favorite description. It makes the most sense too. <laughs> oh, I love it. I and and I'm I'm perfectly fine with, uh, as I say in many places, I'm fine with lots of different kinds of zombies. I think they all count. You know, fast, slow, living, dead. There are many different interpretations. I enjoy many different kinds of stories. But if you gave me a choice, my personal choice for what works the best to me is this sort of now classic Romero shambling reanimated Mm -hmm. flesh-eating corpse. And my favorite version of that is exactly what you just pointed out, this more supernatural but also completely mysterious aspect to why they're coming back. Although you could tell many interesting stories with it, the second you provide a scientific explanation, you do take away, I believe, some of the more abject horror uh, that's at the core of this whole idea. If instead you're saying maybe God is no longer 
involved in the process, or maybe the universe has altered in some way, then you're talking about something absolutely horrific. Well, and what's nice about that, too, is Romero created this modern zombie with this whole mythology of aim for the head, destroy the brain, slow walking, a lot of these elements that we come to expect in zombie films. But what that line also does is it refers back to the zombie movies before Romero, which were mostly this sense of voodoo zombies. Right. One of the things, again, that I teach all the time that, I, that sometimes people seem to have, well, it's not surprising, have, have uh, are a bit surprised by, because they, they don't necessarily delve into the history of it, is how the zombie as we know it today, this Romero-style zombie that most people tend to think of when they think of that word, is itself the aberration that the original thing was a living human being enslaved to another human being's will through a mixture or a variation of supernatural religious belief, magic, the use of drugs, and as you said, you're right, it all goes back to sort of Western culture's misinterpretation of voodoo traditions from places like the West Indies. So it had a very different beginning, but then right there, there's your, there's your great example of how if you then go back the whole zombie genre neatly fits into a perfect way to symbolize aspects of social issues, cultural issues, because the very first zombies were metaphors for racism and slavery. And so it's right there at the beginning, but we didn't realize we should be looking necessarily until the zombie became this embodiment of social consciousness that we're now so aware of. All right, I want to... Put that thought on hold, because a little later in the show, I want to talk about voodoo zombies, and I walked with a zombie. But let's stick Mm. with Romero for just a a little bit longer. Dawn is my favorite Romero zombie film, and it was followed by, you you mentioned Day of the Dead, and I think that's a highly underrated film in the series. That was made in 1985, and that gave us our first real self-aware zombie in Bub. And if you want to hear more about that, listen to my podcast with Arnold that we did, podcast number 59, where we talk all about those self-aware zombies. But after Day of the Dead, it would be decades before Romero returned to the zombie realm. But in 2005, we got Land of the Dead, which was his critique of the Bush administration, but with zombies. So here's a scene where we hear an advertisement for some luxury towers known as Fiddler's Green. And that's where John Leguizamo's character wants to go. Life goes on at Fiddler's Green the heart of one of America's oldest and greatest cities. Bordered on three sides by mighty rivers, Fiddler's Green offers luxury living in the grand old style. Dine at one of, dine at one of six fine restaurants. Look at that perfect gift in our fully stocked shopping Man, it hall. sure did used to make it sound nice. Yeah. Still sounds nice to me. Okay, of course he's denied entrance to Fiddler's Green, even though he has the money. Arnold, although this film is about 21 years old now, it feels oddly apt this year with Donald Trump running for president. Yeah, it really does. I'd have to say that a a lot of horror feels apt, except that I feel like right now we're living the best horror movie we possibly could find. So they all pale in comparison. But yeah, Land of the Dead is prescient in many ways and works better than I think it may have done at the time. Certainly when Romero was given his one shot at, like, here's your big budget chance to do a big release film, it felt a bit like a disappointment. I think Land of the Dead is aging well in comparison to some things. So I, I certainly think that for people that felt it was a bit of a misstep, it's worth revisiting. Night of the Living Dead dealt a little bit with classism, but that was more 
in terms of racial issues, this was really a look at classism. You have these Fiddler's Green Towers, which could be like the Trump Towers, but there's a group of people that get to live there, and then there's the group of people that have to live outside of that and kind of this closer to the zombie apocalypse. Right. And you get this real sense of it's not just if you have money to get in, you have to be a certain type of person, too, to be allowed. And so even in the zombie apocalypse, we have people breaking off into smaller cliques and groups. And that seems very representative of kind of what's going on in our election right now. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, in in a way, it also speaks to something else that I often talk about that I think is, is worth bringing up, which is that just because you can look back at a film or a TV show, whatever piece of media it is, and find some sort of meaning in it and say, oh, I see, like, for instance, Night of the Living Dead, you know, this, this represents a reaction to... The, the violence depicted in coverage of the Vietnam War, this depicts that, that does not mean, that does not invalidate in any way that that piece of media can still have a life beyond the time in which it was made and released. So, perfect example, with Land of the Dead, comes out in 2005, there are many people that virtually dismissed it. Here we are all these years later, it may be that it has even more meaning and more impact now, and you can easily take that and apply it to the modern day and find some kind of relevance. And you could do that with almost anything. But certainly, as I think you're right, I think it's a powerful connection. Well, and there's an interesting thing about it, too, where one of the things they do to distract the zombies is they shoot off these fireworks. And at the beginning of the film, they shoot these fireworks off, and the zombies look up kind of in a half kind of bittersweet sense of like they're recalling something from their distant past maybe and ooing and aahing at what they see. But as the film progresses, at the end, they shoot off these fireworks and it no longer distracts them. And on a certain level, you could extrapolate that and say like, well, that's kind of like the media or something. It's, you know, you have something that distracts people from certain issues or things, and then after a while it wears off and and maybe it doesn't work as effectively. And seeing it again just the other day, it made me think like, oh, maybe that's kind of part of what it's about too. I think that's an excellent idea. It also makes me realize how much I have to revisit that movie now. It's one of the ones I wouldn't necessarily be likely to go back to as often as I just recently watched Day of the Dead again. Mm -hmm. But Land of the Dead definitely uh, bears a little closer scrutiny, so I think you're absolutely right. And and I think that's the beauty of some of the stuff. Again, whether all of these things are intentional or not, the beauty of it is that at this point, too, particularly at the point when that movie was made and Romero's already considered like the king of the genre and you know, let's give him a bit bigger of a budget and, and let him loose and see what he can do, there was a conscious approach to making some kind of statement, some kind of uh, culturally relevant point. And I think some of these things really stand the test of time. I think there's a danger sometimes where a person automatically feels, well, I must make a statement. And sometimes it's better to let these things happen organically rather than to force it. In the case of much of what Romero has done, though, it's demonstrated the fact that when they think about it, when they're conscious of what they're trying to do, uh, the results can be pretty impressive. Well, and I think with him, too, he tends to tackle it as, here's kind of what I want to look at. And then because of who he is and the type of creative person he is, it's like the details tend to fill themselves out really well with stuff that supports that bigger issue. But he may not have necessarily looked at each of those individual points and said, like, here's another way we can make a comment on Bush. We'll, like, have these fireworks. But it, it seems like it just naturally flowed from him. 
Absolutely. He was in, <laughs> I guess you could say he was in his own for a while there, where he, he was the guy that really was able to do this. I do feel that some of the stuff that he's done later on starts to feel less effective mm-hmm. and more like someone who's continuing to try to do something out of a sense of duty and that there's a sense of expectation. But I also think, uh, as, as you and I well know, there are also plenty of other examples of people that sort of taken up the gauntlet and found ways to use the zombie in uh, a whole host of other uh, uh, approaches that also make significant statements. And there's no denying the fact that Romero's at the core of this whole thing. The stuff that he did in his film, certainly in that first trilogy, and then, yes, we absolutely should consider land as well. It sets standards that we, we still expect to this day that when a zombie story comes along, it's going to make that kind of statement. Before we leave Land of the Dead, let's hear a little bit of Dennis Hopper's Kaufman character. And he is kind of the George Bush stand-in for this zombie apocalypse world. Little champers take the edge off things. There we go. This is very extravagant. Yeah, well, I can afford it. Oh, with the 20 grand you owe me from last night and the money from all the other nights together, I got enough for my own place. You mean here in the green? Sure, why not? I'm sorry, Mr. DeMar, but there's a very long waiting list. Well, how long? Well, this is an extremely desirable location. Space is very limited. You mean restricted, don't you? Well, I do have a board of directors, and I have a membership committee. They have to approve. John Leguizamo's character comes and brings him champagne and pours the champagne into two tumbler glasses. The Dennis Hopper character takes the champagne that's in the tumbler, walks over to the bar, and pours it into a champagne glass, a flute. And it just, it was this nice mm-hmm. background element where while they're having this discussion, he's absolutely showing you, like, this is why you're never going to get in. <laughs> <laughs> it's subtlety, yeah. It's very nice. I don't remember that part myself, so yeah, that's a very good touch. I do remember there are also some little things that feel like uh, a little bit of a statement on certain other aspects of culture at the time. I remember one of the things that, that freaked out a lot of people at the time was the scene where the zombies are starting to overrun the... Um, the oasis of peace and calm that this this place has been. And at one point, one of the zombies is actually biting a belly ring out of somebody, and the blood is pooling. And it's like, you know, you could see people's limbs torn left and right. But when you see something smaller, something that feels a bit more like it could really be done or could really happen, it's much more visceral, it's much more painful to see. But I also thought it was like just one of these great examples of, oh, everybody's getting belly rings these days. It felt like George Romero, the old man, saying, oh, it's crazy, all these kids getting belly rings. And there goes the zombie attacking this affectation. What did you think of Dennis Hopper's uh, Kaufman character? Because he was kind of the Bush stand-in. And um, how did you feel that character works? I think he's, well, I think for one thing, the casting is excellent. I think that he brought a level of, uh, craziness to it that only someone like Dennis Hopper could. He he spends a lot of the time uh, more or less restrained, but there are moments where a little bit of the glimmer of uh, Hopper's style comes through. I mean, like there's the famous line, zombies, man, they creep me out. And one of my favorite moments is when he's trying to escape with the money and then uh, fakes out another guy who's, you know, he tries to uh, 
stop him and he distracts him like, oh, zombies are coming. And when the guy turns away, he just immediately kills him. And it's this level of sheer disinterest in anyone else and complete self-absorption in, in safety that we've seen in many other characters. In fact, I remember that one of the first times I saw it, he reminded me most of a character like Dr. Smith from the old Lost in Space TV show. Mm-hmm. A guy who's sort of weak in some ways, but in other ways, perfectly capable when it comes to taking care of himself and will do whatever it takes to make sure that he's safe, cares nothing for anybody else. And what's interesting, too, is he's trying to take money, which even in this particular zombie apocalypse <laughs> realm, we're not even sure that has much value or will yeah. have much value, but he's got those suitcases and he is not going to let them go. Yeah, I know. It's it's it. it it, it just defies logic at that point to think, do you really believe that society is going to maintain a system to the point where that's going to matter at all? But, of course, it's all he understands. It's the only power he knows, so that's what he's going to cling to. And in a way, you can see that it's you know particularly tragic touch, too, that he's, he's holding on to these pieces of paper that are from a different world, from a world that's gone. Now, this film builds a little bit on... Bub's character in the sense of the self-aware zombie. There's Big Daddy who is starting to kind of have these memories come back of who he was as a human. He finds tools that he seems to be starting to use. So these zombies are kind of developing a little bit of consciousness. But one of the things that happens in this film that also plays up a little bit on Day of the Dead is we see zombies being used as target practice and it brings up this notion of when do we stop being human and when when does this violence, ups, like violence to a zombie, upset us or concern mm-hmm. us? And that's always been an interesting place, I think. And Day of the Dead this did that well, and uh, Land of the Dead also revisits that. Yes, absolutely. Not to jump too, too much ahead to something else, but I, I will say this is a timely conversation we're having because just last night, uh, The Walking Dead yes. returned for its seventh season. I had a bit of blowback on Twitter about it because I had uh, an extraordinary reaction, one I, I didn't quite expect from that season premiere, but I believe there's also something to be said for a moment when in the real world, as viewers of a zombie story, we might find that we're becoming less than human. And sometimes the choice might have to be made that it's time to bow out, uh, which is something that I was very vocal about last night. So, yeah, I think that's a a key element to this entire thing is uh, holding on to our humanity and finding where that line is. And as we've talked about the sentient zombies, the beauty of those kind of stories are that the line is so blurred, it's it's difficult to tell. And sometimes the human characters are the less less, uh, capable representatives of the species than the zombies are. So it varies. And we will revisit Walking Dead uh, a little later when we're going to talk about a couple of TV zombie shows. Romero made two more zombie films after Land of the Dead, Diary of the Dead in 2007 and Survival of the Dead in 2009. Lesser works compared to his other films. From Romero, let's segue to a zombie film from across the pond and one of my all-time favorites, and this is Shaun of the Dead. And... Edgar Wright, who directed it, and Simon Pegg, who co-wrote and starred in it, actually were zombies in Land of the Dead in a bit part, which kind of gives us another connection between these films. But here's a little piece of an interview I did with Edgar Wright where he describes his original idea for Shaun of the Dead. 
I think originally one of the first ideas was, was to call it Tea Time of the Dead. So it'd be like the English, you know, night, day, dawn, tea time. But uh, not really, no, the, 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 the initial idea was to kind of do a, almost like a companion film to one of the Romero films in that to have kind of the story of two little people in an epic situation, really. So that was the kind of the... We wanted to find our own twist on the horror comedy genre, and so the idea was to kind of have a zombie film that's not really about the zombies. Edgar Wright and his co-writer and star Simon Pegg revealed their obvious affection for Romero's work when I spoke to them in 2004, just before Shaun of the Dead was released. It is close to George Romero's thing because our zombies are like his. They're slow and they're allegorical. And, you know, Dawn, uh, the remake of Dawn was very much an action film and the, 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 the monsters were there, the zombies were there really as kind of monsters to scare rather than to say anything about people, you know, which is fair enough. But, yeah, we kind of wanted to keep that spirit that George Romero started off, which is to use them to, you know, as he did with Dawn, to, with consumerism and Day, which is, I think, you know, vivisection and stuff like that, and, and use them as a metaphor. And uh, we, we sort of picked up the baton with that. In a way, like in, in that way that, that the zombies meant different things in different eras and stuff, kind of we, we always said that our zombies are like the metaphor for apathy. It's kind of like the, the great plague is laziness. So it's kind of almost like the zombies represent like sloth. So Arnold, do you see Shaun of the Dead as kind of a logical progression from those Romero zombie films or kind of a logical evolution from them? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's certainly uh, no question that it's been embraced by the community, too. It's just one of the great modern classics of the genre. One of the things that I think uh, recommends it really highly is the fact that you have some powerhouse comedy talent in it uh, with Simon Pegg and Nick Frost and so many of their colleagues in the film. But the movie is not a parody of the genre. It's not a slapstick comedy. It's not a comedy that makes fun of the premise or mm-hmm. uh, employs a lesser level of reality. This is a completely real Romero-esque apocalypse with the zombies taking over England. The comedy derives organically from the characters themselves, who they are as people, their behavior, the things they say. The comedy is hard to explain, but I know you know what it means. The comedy is real. It comes from real mm-hmm. life and real situations. It's not silliness. It's not cartoonishness. When someone is hurt or killed by a zombie, that's as real as you see in any other film. And I think that's one of the biggest strengths of the movie is that it proves you can find humor just as you can in real life. In even moments of great tragedy or uh, violence or conflict, human beings turn to humor. And Shaun of the Dead is a great zombie movie and also an excellent look at human nature. And it covers everything from the, the bonds of friendship and love and how that can rise above you know, the most horrific circumstances. It talks about how important family is. There's so much in Shaun of the Dead that's as meaningful as any other film, and yet it also has the ability to make you laugh at the same time. Well, and what it does so well, too, is it really develops the character so well. So many times in horror films, especially, you get this sense of padding at the beginning where they're just filling out half-hour worth of the film with meaningless character bits, you know, like, okay, we have to show that he has a girlfriend or we have to do. But what Shaun of the Dead does so well is that everything that's laid out in the beginning, everything about who these characters are, how they relate to each other, what problems they're having, all pay off 
so well at the end. And that's what really invests you in those characters so that when you get to the end and a character you like dies, you feel this real emotional investment in them. Oh, absolutely. And I've often said, too, that that team, Edgar Wright and everybody else that work with him, that work with him that team... Any of their movies, particularly movies like Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, their movies are just uh, a perfect class in how to structure a script that's not only beautifully done, but extremely satisfying from a viewer's perspective, whether they're conscious of it or not. They do so much in their writing where uh, it reminds me of um, a lot of movies done by another team, Robert Zemeckis and Bob Gale, the people that did the Back to the Future movies, but also did a lot of other stuff like used cars and I Want to Hold Your Hand, a lot of other things. They often talked about the fact that they believed in the set em up pay em off school of storytelling, that you need to properly set everything up at the beginning and then pay off all of those bits and pieces, whether it's a physical bit or a character development bit. The point is that there should be a structure and a harmony to everything. And I think that Shaun of the Dead is an example of a movie that does that so beautifully. great example of it, for instance, is that when Shaun is broken up with his girlfriend, thinks the world is coming to an end, ha-ha, and they're sitting in the pub together, Ed tries to cheer him up by saying, here's what we're going to do tomorrow. And he rattles off a list of things about them going to a pub and getting a drink and doing this and doing that, and it sounds just offhandedly like, yeah, we're going to roam around and do the stuff, but... If you watch the rest of the movie and then go back to that speech, you realize that in a certain sense, everything he said in that speech is everything they wind up doing the next day, only in a different context. And it's that kind of writing that is just so rich and adds so much to the experience of the movie. I think it's just a, a perfect kind of thing to do. So it, it certainly makes that a significant part, not just for zombie movies, it's just the movie in general beautiful piece of work. Well, and you bring that up, and it's interesting because at the very end, what you have with Sean and his girlfriend is exactly the thing she said she didn't want to be doing. (laughs) that, That they end up in this kind of not zombie existence, but it's like this routine of like, I don't want to just be going to the pub every night and sitting around watching TV and you hanging out with your friends. Yep, and there's two ways of looking at that. I've talked about that with a lot of people, and there's two ways of looking at it, because on the one hand, you could argue this movie is a horrific tragedy from her perspective. Everything that she was trying to escape from winds up being what she's trapped in at the end. On the other hand, you could argue that perhaps what we're seeing is the things that she thought were traps are not necessarily traps, because when you see how dark and awful things can be, you start to see value in something that you dismissed earlier and that maybe there's happiness and harmony to be found there. That's a positive way of looking at it. Frankly, I've always felt there's a little bit of a dark edge to that ending, that that she's just, you know, that's it. We're going to the pub later. And uh, it's a little sad. Yeah, I think you can read it both ways because it's also it could be the sense of like after you go through the zombie apocalypse, maybe the simple little pleasures in life are to be appreciated. But I do think there is a little edge to it. In looking at Shaun of the Dead, part of what its social message is about is this sense of apathy that Edgar Wright talks about, where these characters, one of my favorite moments in the film is when Shaun has this routine of going to the local store to get his snacks or whatever and his newspaper. And... The morning after the apocalypse, he's walking to that store again, not noticing 
everything around him, bodies, shambling zombies, the ice box thing that he opens actually has a handprint of blood. And when he's walking, he does my favorite sound effect in the whole film is he's walking and he like does this little slip and slide on blood. And then goes to pay for his paper and walks out and he hasn't noticed anything. Nelson, have you got any papers? Nelson. Are you about 15p? Yeah, and of course that's another example of what I was saying too, although that one pays off much quicker than some of the stuff that parallels later in the film. But it's, it's a beautiful tracking shot that they do twice where mm-hmm. you get that run once when everything is normal and once when everything is you know, post-apocalyptic, and from his perspective, it's the same damn thing, and he doesn't even notice. And yeah, and that, that sense of apathy that we have all become zombies is right there in the film at the beginning mm-hmm. with the montage of all the characters that we know are, well, once we've seen the movie, we know we're going to see them again later. People waiting for, the, for public transportation, people who are working at a store, the sort of by rote boring, endless, mundane routine that we all go through in regular life, right down to Sean shuffling out in the morning when he's waking up and being everything that we expect physically out of a zombie character. That's right there on the face of it, right at the beginning of this movie. It's like we are already in the zombie apocalypse. The only thing we need now are the real dead people to come back. Well, and it's also this sense of all these people, each one living in their own little bubble. And one of the things about this film that's so good is the sound work in it in terms of how much layering there is in what we're hearing in terms of sirens and news reports and it's all this stuff that's going on there there's the scene where sean's flipping channels although no one official is prepared to comment religious groups are calling it judgment day there's as an increasing number of reports of serious attacks on people who are literally being eaten alive a witness reports are sketchy one unifying detail seems to be that the attackers in many instances appear to be dead excited to have with us here a sensational chart topping we get snippets of five or six different shows that all cut together in a way that when we the listener the the viewer are hearing it describes the zombie apocalypse. Yeah. Sean's watching all this, including a clip from a news show that's kind of saying the dead are rising, and none of it kind of gets in. <laughs> yeah, it's all being... And, and because it's all... It, it, the other thing about the, the, all the different sound clips and everything you're talking about is there's that beautiful thing of the flipping the channels and the idea that we are, again, going back to a point I made earlier, we're so awash in media that in a sense... It is the very existence of like a podcast like what we're doing or a media literacy course that I teach that's so necessary because we're so prone to just letting all this wash over us, we don't even pick up on the meaning of anything anymore. Mm-hmm. It's just all white noise. And that is perfectly captured in stuff like that. That just all blends together. It's all meaningless and nobody's paying any attention. If Dawn of the Dead had my favorite description of why the dead are walking the earth, Shaun of the Dead, I think, has my favorite description of what a zombie is. Now, take another look at the way he moves. Remember, Dylan. Almost like sleepwalking. Look at the face. It's vacant with a hint of sadness. So I love this description because it really gets to the sense of zombies kind of 
being us and us being them and and not ever quite entirely losing their humanity because we constantly are seeing ourselves in them, I think. Yes. And I think that is one of the most troubling, terrifying, and tragic aspects of the entire genre is the concept that a zombie, the kind that we're talking about in these movies, too, that are, that are for all intents and purposes, lost to us as human beings, but might somehow retain something. Are they remembering? Are they trapped in there somehow? That sounds more horrifying than the idea of facing one that might want to attack you. Is the idea that you might be one and aware of it somehow, but incapable of escaping that primal shell that you're in. And you don't see that played too often in a lot of things. Uh, in fact, Romero himself uh, talked about the development of his zombies through Bub and Big Daddy and Land and all that, as saying that he didn't really think they were remembering anything. He just thought it was more like muscle memory. They're just, you know, going through the motions of things that that stuck in them, like the returning to the mall as well. But if you took it that extra step, like even the moment in Shaun of the Dead, you know, does his mother recognize him, that kind of thing. It can be truly, truly a tragic thing to think about. Well, in Shaun, they are able to get to that in quick moments that sometimes are also humorous because you've got the scene where Shaun's stepdad, Phil, has transitioned into being a zombie and he's stuck in the car and there's loud music playing which Phil hated. Sure we can't just leave your dad? He's not my dad. Oh sure. Mom, he was but he's not anymore. I really think... No, listen to me mom, listen. There's not even your husband in there. Okay? I know it looks like him but there is nothing of the man you loved in that car now. Nothing. Let's go, shall we? What is Phil doing in the car? He's going to turn off the music that he hates. And you just have that flash of, oh, what if he does have some of his former self in him? exactly. But it's almost a throwaway moment. And that's what I love about Sean is it has these moments that on a certain level are throwaway moments. But every time you see the film, you pick up on like one more. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, it's a movie you revisit time and again. Uh, I always find that it's it's kind of fun, too, to like say, well, let's pick a character, and I'm just going to really focus on their performance and what they're doing, particularly if they're like in the background of some scenes. You can really pick up on some amazing stuff when you follow an actor who may be you know, having downtime. Like, you know, if they're doing the job right, they're always on, they're always in character, they're always doing something that adds to the story. But they're often blending in if you're just looking at the big picture. So revisiting something, oh, it's just a, it's a wonderful way to pick up on new things you've never seen before. All right. I want to leave Sean and Romero behind right now and go to a time before George Romero. Yes, there was a time before Romero zombies. We mentioned voodoo zombies. So these are a very different kind of thing. And my favorite voodoo zombie film is I Walked with a Zombie, which was directed by Jacques Tournier. And here's the enticing opening from the film. I walked with a zombie. <laughs> Does seem an odd thing to say. Had anyone said that to me a year ago, I'm not at all sure I would have known what a zombie was. I might have had some notion that they were strange and frightening, even a little funny. It all began in such an ordinary way. Arnold, what do we get from a voodoo zombie film that's different from the Romero zombie? Well, as I was mentioning before, the, the voodoo zombies, where, where the genre all began in cinema was with things like William Seaborn's Magic Island in 1929 and other accounts of Western travelers experiencing 
what they believe to be uh, remarkably primitive or frightening rituals going on in the West Indies and Haiti. And obviously they were applying their own sensibilities to a very different uh, religious tradition, which is sort of a, a mesh of local traditions and beliefs and Catholicism that had come from missionary work and all sorts of things. And the result is that the, the original zombie is based on the idea that people could, through the work of a high priest and through the intervention of the gods or the spirits of the dead, could serve as conduits for these spirits. And the, the word zombie comes from a variety of different traditions that usually refers to a person possessed by the spirits of the dead or the spirit itself or a vessel for. And so these are living people, for the most part, that are catatonic, that are depersonalized, dehumanized, lacking free will, lacking personality, basically a human being reduced to a mindless shell, but a puppet, something that can be manipulated and controlled. The zombie we know from the post-Romero era is often a self-propelled being that is working on some sort of primal instinct to feed. But the zombie from the voodoo era is a living person for the most part that seems as if dead, a sleepwalker, and uh, their propulsive force is not coming from within but from without, some sort of other person or creature or will that is guiding them, driving them on. And as I mentioned, uh, you can look at any of these and see embedded in it racist mindset of the time, our conception of slavery, and when we cease to be an individual human being and when we've given ourselves over to someone else. There's a lot of powerful stuff in these early films, and they're, they're well worth visiting. I think I Walk With a Zombie in particular is just a beautiful piece of work just aesthetically. It's something to behold at times, and I think a lot of people don't give it a chance now. Well, and it has... One of the more striking images in that exceptionally tall Haitian zombie that guides her back through to the ceremony that she goes to. Yeah, that's I right. forgot Carrefour. his name. Yes, yes. Carrefour. And he was, he never gets a line. He's just a physical presence. Interestingly, Dwayne Jones played Ben in Night of the Living Dead, and Darby Jones is, is <laughs> Carrefour, and I walk with a zombie. And he also turns up as Carrefour again, more or less, in Zombies on Broadway, which is a, a pretty lousy comedy, but it's set on the same island. So it's sort of a sequel. But Carrefour is, oh, man, just uh, a very powerful, frightening presence. Particularly, I love the sequence where he stalks toward the camera, toward the audience, until he actually blurs out, you know, and the, the camera doesn't keep up with him. And it's a very effective way of, of drawing you in to the, the horror of that moment. Well, you talk about this notion of this the voodoo zombie is being controlled by someone else and basically losing all your free will. To me, on a certain level, that is so terrifying. <laughs> That's... Oh, absolutely. And it's that idea, too, that sometimes gets explored is that Another way of looking at the zombie genre is it's just this rumination on identity and the idea of, like you were saying right at the very beginning, what makes us human and the idea that if we could lose ourselves. I mean, I've seen recent um, uses of the zombie metaphor, and this could be really uh, significant for a lot of people listening who have these issues in their lives, but I've seen the zombie metaphor used very effectively for capturing the concept of what if you have a family member who has Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. or a terminal disease, or particularly one that affects personality and memory, and how easily that can be 
equated to the idea of a zombie that's struggling with, you know, is, is there any humanity left? Or even the voodoo type of zombie, which you're a person, but you're trapped inside a shell that no longer cooperates with you. It can be incredibly powerful stuff. I mean, I know there are always people who go, oh, zombies, it's silliness. But as we're talking about here in a show like this, there's, there's a lot of deeper meaning here. If people can just look past the surface to what it's actually saying to what the symbolism is about. Yes, definitely. That's. I think this is the reason why I love zombie films so much, because it is all about this. Because the most terrifying thing to me is loss of identity uh, yeah. in, in any sense. Yeah. And so zombie films, to me, just capture that so well and are able to talk about so many things. But at their root, they all seem to kind of be about this sense of what makes us human and when do we stop being human. And Right. That's always been fascinating. I want to play two quick clips from I Walked with a Zombie, just because I'm not sure how many people have actually seen the film, and I I do encourage people to give it a chance. But I want to play two clips that kind of reveal both the film's naivete and its kind of barely emerging social conscience. But here's a clip first of the nurse, played by Frances D., and she reacts to one of the Haitians talking about the slave ships that brought them there. Holland was the most old family, miss. They brought the colored folks to the island. The colored folks in tea misery. Tea misery? What's that? A man, miss. An old man who lives in the garden at Fort Holland. With arrows stuck in him and a sorrowful, weeping look on his black face. Alive? No, miss. He's just the same as he was in the beginning. On the front side of an enormous boat. You mean a figurehead. If you say, miss. And the enormous boat brought the long-ago fathers and the long-ago mothers of us all chained to the bottom of the boat. They brought you to a beautiful place, didn't they? If you say, miss, if you say. She very naively brings up this notion of you you were brought to a beautiful country, but we do get a little sense of the horrors that awaited them a little bit later in the film when she and the plantation owner are looking at this statue and they talk a little bit about what really is kind of at the heart of this country. Why was the maid crying? I'm not sure I can make you understand. Do you know what this is? Figure of St. Sebastian. Yes. But it was once the figurehead of a slave ship. That's where our people came from, from the misery and pain of slavery. For generations, they found life a burden. That's why they still weep when a child is born and make merry at a burial. I've told you, Miss Connell, this is a sad place. It's interesting that this film... Because it's early on in cinema history, it's an early film, and it wasn't full-fledged in terms of its kind of social commentary, but it has the beginnings of these zombie social consciousness, I think. Oh, yeah, I agree. And and again, it, it may not be that everything is intentional, I th- although I think in that case, the, there's a lot of stuff going on in that movie that feels very much like there's thought behind it. I mean, like, for instance, there's the, um, I can't remember the character's name now, but there's the one that he, she sort of built a little bit of a friendship with one of the locals who works in the house. And she has one of my favorite scenes that I think is, like, more chilling than a scene with an actual zombie in it where she suggests, you know, you could take her to a doctor, uh, but not the doctor you're talking about, better doctors. Doctors and nurses can only do so much, Alma. They can't cure everything. Doctors that are people can't cure everything. You mean doctors that are people? There are other doctors. 
Yes, other doctors. Better doctors. Where? At the Homeford. That's nonsense, Alma. They even kill nonsense, Miss Betsy. Mama Rose was mindless. I was at the Homeford when the Hungan brought her mind back. Was Mama Rose like Mrs. Holland? No. She was mindless, but not like Miss Jessica. But the Hungan cured her. Are you trying to tell me that the voodoo priest could cure Mrs. Holland? Yes, Miss Betsy. I mean that. The Hungan will speak to the Rada drums, and the drums will speak to Leba and Dambala. Better doctors. And you know that she believes it 100%, that she has utter conviction in the power of these things. And then you start to have to wonder, does it work? You know, because you believe in it, because maybe that's the way it works. Uh, there's there's a lot of a lot of this movie dealing with the idea that perhaps it's worth looking beyond your own culture and your own sensibilities, or at the very least, that it's wrong to dismiss someone else or or have no respect for them because they're different. And and most of the the white characters in this suffer for their lack of ability to see beyond their own culture and their own experience. So there's something to be said for this having some pretty powerful stuff in it. Yes. So I urge anyone who hasn't seen I Walked With a Zombie to go and check it out. It's definitely worth seeing. I want to move on to a more recent film, and it's a pretty seriously toned film. It doesn't have any jokiness or kind of comedy to it at all. And some might even dispute that it's a true zombie film, but this is Dead Girl by Marcel Sarmiento. And the premise is simple. It's a pair of high school boys, the kind of boys who get picked on by the jocks. They find a naked woman strapped to a gurney in an old abandoned mental asylum, and they discover she can't be killed. She can't die even after being shot. And this leads to some pretty unsavory sexual exploitation by the boys. Yeah, you fucking like that, don't you, you fucking dead little fucking zombie cunt? Yeah. How's her hold doing, man? Unwilling but able, as always. We gotta, uh, we gotta get some lube or something in there. Cause she is just bone dry. What do you think she is today, T? Our fuck slave. <laughs> I mean, seriously, like, I don't know, man. Like, like, what's she doing here? Like, how'd she get here? What's your problem? Nothing. I'm just asking, you know. How long have you been here, anyways? I spent the night. Why? Because it's starting to stink. Wow. 
L that is coming from the wounds. I smelled it this morning. So these boys don't see the dead girl as human. And this brings out some unpleasant qualities in them. But again, this seems rather timely in this election time with Donald Trump's recent comments or alleged comments about women. And here is a scene that I want to play in particular where the boys are trying to find a new dead girl. The original dead girl is looking a bit beat up and worse for the wear. And so they want to make another dead girl. So they go out looking for a new victim because they want one that looks a little prettier. In fact, there's this strange scene where the first dead girl they have, they put a magazine cover over her. So there's like a face of a a model on her so that they can't see how bad she looks. But here's how they talk about their potential new victim. Look at that ass. You see that? Yeah, I see that. I can't fucking miss that. There's enough fucking cottage cheese spilling oh. out of there to feed Ethiopia. No, bro, it ain't that bad at all. Ain't that bad. Ain't good enough. Jesus. Look, man. Hey, this might be your only fucking chance, okay? She's the only piece of split tail that come by here the last hour, all right? Look at your jugs, man. Fucking hot, right? True. All right, look. That's the best we're going to get out here, all right? Let's do it, all right? All right. All right, fine, 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 fine. Just, just wait till she comes out. All right, I'm going. So that seems to be the type of mentality that Trump seems to reflect in some of the comments attributed to him. So again, this seems like the zombie movie, even though it's a few years old, is fairly timely. Yeah, I think Dead Girl's ahead of its time. It's, it's a movie entirely, you know, on one level, all the movie is really about since we're talking about this idea of metaphor of symbolism, is the ways in which men in our culture, particularly like young men like the guys in the center of this movie, can so easily and so callously depersonalize women in their life and turn them into objects to be exploited by any means and, and for any desire. And this movie kind of came and went. It got a lot of attention in critical circles. It very quickly rose to the top of a lot of lists for people that make, like, here's zombie movies you must see. And I certainly have seen it crop up in a lot of those over the years where people are saying, look, if you haven't seen this yet. But I think that now it's a movie that could certainly be more eye-opening to people who want to look deeper like we are about what the, the actual message is. It could work better now. It's a sad commentary that that's the case. Yeah. But I think it's true that it could work better now. A little bit of a spoiler if you haven't seen it. But one of the things that's, that's interesting about it is you have these two boys. One's kind of the good kid who's saying, like, don't do this. He tries to rescue her. He tries to set her free. And he says, what you're doing is wrong. But at the end, we have this situation where the girl that he has always been in love with, but she's always been in love with the jock, she gets turned into a dead girl. Yeah. And the thing that's interesting is the initial part of the film, it's all grungy and dirty and they, they never put clothes on her and she's bleeding and flesh is falling off and it really is kind of a repulsive situation. But at the end, when he has his kind of dream girl, he's got all these candles lit and he's got her in a pretty white dress. And now suddenly it it leaves it a little open-ended, but it seems that he is going to be keeping her. And yes. there's this yeah. sense of like, okay, if we 
treat women badly and objectify them, but we kind of make it a little prettier, it's somehow acceptable. And so the ending is is yeah. not uplifting in any way, or <laughs> it, it almost makes you feel worse seeing oh, him absolutely. turn that way. Yeah, I agree. Again, I, I, I haven't delved a lot into the behind-the-scenes issues of this, too, but I, I wouldn't be the least bit surprised that this is a case where things are very calculated in terms mm-hmm. of uh, the message that is intended, because everything about it is making a very powerful statement about the sort of gender relationships in our culture and how this you know works. And as we just said, it seems to have really reached a fever pitch right now where we have a presidential candidate that some people in this country actually seem beyond all reason and sanity to want to vote for being a sexual predator, among many other things. And and you have a movie like Dead Girl that uses the zombie metaphor beautifully to say these are systemic problems and these are problems deeply embedded in our culture. Mm-hmm. And you can use a zombie story to confront that in a way that maybe you can't quite as effectively if you're just using a present-day setting in a real-world situation. Maybe you can draw some people in because you're using that framework to tell the story. Well, and again, I think this is a situation where you have a genre film that in some ways can deliver a stronger message because the message isn't the thing in the forefront. So people don't put up that resistance where if you go see a documentary about a topic like this, it may only work to the sense of preaching to the converted. People already have that point of view. But, you know, I can see kids who are like the kids in that film going to see a zombie movie. And in the course of watching it, maybe one of those scenes will make them think a little deeper about something, or maybe it'll catch them off guard and kind of make them go like, well, that's, you know, what they're doing to that girl is kind of, you know, gross or is kind of pushing the limits. And they yeah, might not I mean, have thought that. Hope. Yeah, we can hope. <laughs> you can certainly hope that you can reach some people, and, and that really is ultimately what a lot of this is about, is that you're never going to be able to communicate with people that have certain mindset if you just confront them face-on with the story, but if you use something that steps to one side of that, you might be able to get into their head and make them think a little bit, and it's very possible. Well, let's move on. I want to move on to two TV shows. There's the British one, In the Flesh, and then the AMC Walking Dead, which just had its season seven premiere that left a lot of fans kind of devastated. So let's look at The Walking Dead first, since it's fresh on people's minds. And Arnold, what is it about this show that you like? Well, things have changed. So <laughs> <laughs> it's been I'm going to give you seasons. a little preview of what's uh, coming up in one of the upcoming episodes okay. of my podcast. So I have been, I mean, The Walking Dead has become, since it debuted in 2010, basically the standard bearer for the entire genre. It has become the centerpiece culturally and certainly merchandising and, and marketing-wise of the world of zombies in pop culture. It's a juggernaut. It's the number one show on television. And as I've often taught since I began my course and and in talking on the podcast, you always have to delve deeper and go, well, what is it? What is it about our culture, particularly in this country, but certainly globally, that is drawing people so much to turn this show into the number one form of entertainment on television? What is it that we need? And we talk about all the things we just spoke about. We talk about fear and how zombies embody fear. We talk about the fact that Walking Dead has been, very often in the past, an excellent framework for examining human nature. What makes us a zombie? You know, how do we hold on to our essential humanity? How do we not slip into barbarism? 
all these things. And over the last six years, The Walking Dead has occasionally brilliantly, occasionally not so brilliantly, but it's a television show that ebbs and flows like any other, has presented us with some compelling characters, with some excellent storytelling, and with some great examples of discussions of human nature and basic ideas about what makes us people by using the zombies as framework. As the show's gone on, it's evolved. It seems to have become a bit of a caricature of itself, but that often happens with television. And more recently, the zombies themselves have begun to recede more and more into the background as the real-world situation supposedly happening there. They're decaying, they're falling apart. Arguably, they become less and less of a threat. Last year, the season premiere had an entire horde of them, because at this point, even a few of them don't really mean much of anything to the people. The real struggle, ultimately, in the show has always been with fellow human beings. And as I mentioned earlier, that's what the zombie genre is about. It's that true evil resides in another living human heart, not in the zombie. However, they had their season premiere. They did their payoff for who their latest big bad, Negan, who is drawn straight from the comics, who he killed. And I watched 45 minutes of the most mind-numbingly depressing, tragic on a purely pathetic and uh, viscerally repulsive level, um, uh, absence of storytelling, uh, non-linear because they were desperately trying to hold back the revelation for another 20 minutes into the premiere just so they can make people watch more commercials, having already held it back from the finale last time that made a lot of people mad. It was some of the most callous, cynical, coldest approach to this I've ever seen. And when I witnessed that, provide any spoilers because I know there are people probably still catching up, even if they listen to this later. But all I'll say is that when they get to one particular moment of pure, absolute, in-your-face barbarism, it occurred to me at that point that I felt so almost physically ill. And this is coming from me, remember, (laughs) you know, who does this, you know, on a regular basis. I realized I was done with this show. It has nothing left to say. It's done everything that it can. It has explored every aspect of human nature that it can effectively communicate about. And now it's become a show that, to me, you mentioned Trump. Mm -hmm. I feel that the show has now become a show that feels very emblematic of the very issues our country is facing that might result in a candidate like that. It feels like a show that was no longer exploring the violence as a means to discuss human nature, but rather to provide the violence because it's what everybody was enjoying. Let's watch somebody get batted in in the head to death. Isn't this exciting? Which one of your next characters is the one you're going to get to see splayed out on the ground with brains all over? Isn't this fun? It was truly a disgusting experience, and I've never had that kind of reaction. So I think I'm finished with The Walking Dead. I think there are many other great zombie things to discuss, like we've been talking about. Mm -hmm. And I think that show has run its course, but I guarantee you it's got years left in it, I'm quite sure. Well, this is based on a comic. How would you compare the two, the TV show and the comic? Well, one of the reasons, I mean, of course, the other thing, too, is I can only hope that people understand that when I talk about this, and then I'll also be dealing with it even more in my podcast, so that people understand this is coming not just from a random viewer, but from someone who's been steeped in this kind of thing for a very long time and analyzed it for a long time, so it's, I would argue an informed opinion. But I got a lot of Twitter blowback immediately last night from people saying, well, you know, it's just from the comic. And the thing is, that's part of the issue. It is from a comic. 
things take different shape from one medium to the next. They were actually very faithful in their depiction of this one particular incident. They added one wrinkle to it, arguably, but for the most part, this one particular death last night was shot for shot, word for word, as faithful as any fan of the comic who would want it to be could hope for. My argument, however, was that on the page in a comic, it's a different impact than when you watch it depicted in live action, dramatized with actors who you have emotionally invested in for six previous seasons on a television show in a way that I'm sorry you just don't in the same way in the comic medium. It's a different form of storytelling. And in this case, I would argue it went too far. It's just too far. It serves no purpose to do it that dramatically, that overt, that violently. It only serves to titillate those that would find that entertaining. So I would say that it was perfectly faithful. Comic fans should have every reason to be happy if they want to be that that happened. But I think the media of comic and television represent different kinds of levels of impact and storytelling. And yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm still reeling from my reaction to it, so I'm processing that, but I really think that this was a step too far. Well, let me play a brief scene, not giving anything away. Uh, actually, I'll, uh, the, the clip is from the end of season six with Jeffrey Dean Morgan as Negan and kind of explaining what his new world order is. You see, Rick, whatever you do, no matter what, you don't mess with the new world order. New world order is this, and it's really very simple. So even if you're stupid, which you very may well be, you can understand it. You ready? Here goes, pay attention. Give me your shit, or I will kill you. Today was career day. We invested a lot so you would know who I am and what I can do. You work for me now. You have shit, you give it to me. That's your job. Now I know that is a mighty big, nasty pill to swallow. But swallow it, you most certainly will. Let me play devil's advocate here for a moment and ask you sure, this sure. and say, if you felt that physically repulsed by the violence in the show, on a certain level, that's what violence should do? You should yeah. feel that? So where where does the show go wrong in the sense of if it elicits kind of what real violence should elicit from a viewer? How does it artistically kind of like not work for you? Well, that's an excellent question. And of course, that's something that's also been coming up where people are saying, well, it did what it's supposed to do. It's like, yes, it did, except that this is not real life. This is a television show. And as we've just spent a lot of time discussing, it's about conveying important messages and communicating culturally with one another and empathizing with fellow human beings through a fictional construct. There's a point beyond which that ceases to have an effective impact when all it's doing is shutting you down physically and emotionally and mentally because of the, the, the sheer tragedy and pathos and misery. It was a miserable hour of television. There was no glimmer of humanity or of hope. In fact, I would even argue this episode is the perfect example of the death of all hope. And the fact is... If you're going to depict something like that, 
with the intention of conveying the enormity of the violence and the tragedy, there is still an element of metaphor involved, of symbolism. Not that I'm saying it needs to be weirdly abstract or all off-screen, but there's a point beyond which there's no need to go after a certain point, because you're not trying to recreate an absolute real-world experience of witnessing someone die tragically and horribly in front of their loved ones. You're trying to tell a story in which that happens and keep an audience interested so that they can then think, well, what happens next? How do these people avenge this? What does the loss of that person mean? But if all you're thinking about is that you feel sick in your heart and your soul and your mind, it has ceased to be an effective form of storytelling. It's just repulsive. And so I would also argue that clearly the indication is there are plenty of people who are just fine with it or who felt that it was impressive, but not impressive enough in that way that they would stop watching. And that's up to them. But, you know, as someone, if I could just play the card as someone who is one of these world-renowned zombie experts, I can say, here you go. The Walking Dead has reached, has reached a line for me. They found one of my lines. They stepped over it. And that's just the way it is. Well, as someone who's not a faithful Walking Dead viewer, I've come in and out of the show. Uh, early on, it annoyed me because I felt there was so much soap opera going on. Mm-hmm. Um, I had issues with the zombie apocalypse going on and people worrying about who was sleeping with who. I was like, ah, I don't <laughs> care. There's zombies out there. Protect yourself. Yeah. So I came in and out of the show, and there were. I was also frustrated by a season where I felt like I spent the entire season in that farmhouse yeah. <laughs> with a father trying to leave his injured son just to tell the wife that the son was injured. I'm just like, you're a parent. You're supposed to stay with the child. So I had some frustration with it. I love Greg Nicotero's work in it. He's a producer, but he's also a, a special effects wizard. So there were things about it I liked, especially with the zombies in particular. There were some things that I remember from, I think it was the first episode where you see that woman who's cut in half crawling. And three days later, I think yeah. you come back and she's gone six inches and to me, yeah. that really oh, summed up beautiful work. Absolutely. some of the horror of it. But in watching kind of the end of uh, season six and into the end, this first episode, what seems to be the problem for me is what you're talking about in terms of storytelling. It's not so much what they showed, but it didn't feel like it was the way the story needed to be told, but the way they wanted to tell it to drag it out. It just felt like we need to keep people hooked till next season and we need to, and right. it, it, it seemed like the flaw was in, in the way it was told. Yeah. I think a lot of the show has, has suffered from bad writing over, over time, largely because it's a show that's now gotten to the point where they know they have to keep this thing going and drive it into the ground. And, um, and last season they had a thing where the entire beginning of the, ep- the season began with a, a quarry filled with zombies that might kind of sort of be in danger of breaking a little bit and possibly letting a few out. And so our supposed hero's brilliant plan is let's just break the whole thing open and march the entire horde directly near our safe community and see if this works, which was lunacy on the highest level. But, you know, stupid decisions are what unfortunately fuel a lot of these things. And 
And, and even that, it was like, well, this is dumb, but, you know, there's elements of it that were handled well, and there's it's still got something to say. But now we've also reached a point, by the way, another thing that's important about last night is, last night's episode had nothing to do with zombies. Mm-hmm. And, and another thing that I want to forestall is people saying, you know, well, the zombie genre is not about zombies. Like, oh, no one knows that better than me and you, Beth. Yeah. <laughs> we, know, we know that. But the point is, if you're telling a story in that genre... Somewhere that has to be a factor, or the metaphor breaks down completely. Right. What happened last night was 45 minutes of just people being cruel to people, relentlessly cruel. There was even a scene in the episode, this is not a spoiler much, there was even a scene in the episode in which we, we see a zombie sort of shuffling around, and a character virtually ignores it <laughs> and just glimpses it in a rearview mirror. And the, the subtlety there was sledgehammer in its approach. It was sort of like saying, you know, we're, not, we're done with zombies, really. That has nothing to do with anything we're doing anymore. It's just about people being awful. And if I wanted to watch a show about people being awful, there are plenty of places you can go. Well, as a final concluding comment for Walking Dead, I, I just want to wrap back to the comic book and to the notion of the title itself. The mm-hmm. Walking Dead initially strikes you as it must be the zombies uh, and they don't actually use the word zombies they're walkers but they're walkers initially your feeling is the walking dead are these zombies but as the comic progresses and as the uh, initial series did too we're seeing the human characters as the walking dead oh absolutely that's that's one of the core themes of the entire series both the comic and the tv show in fact early on in the comic uh, creator Robert Kirkman had Rick Grimes, who's still the, the leader of the main group, basically articulate that specifically and just say, you know, they're not the Walking Dead, we are. And for many years on the show, we were waiting for, like, when are we going to get the Rick speech where he actually says that? And they did eventually do it. When I was a kid, I asked my grandpa once if he ever killed any Germans in the war. He wouldn't answer. Said that was grown-up stuff. So, so I asked if the Germans ever tried to kill Ham, but he got real quiet. He said he was dead the minute he stepped into enemy territory. Every day he woke up, told himself, rest in peace, now get up and go to war. And then after a few years of pretending he was dead, he made it out alive. And that's the trick of it, I think. We do what we need to do, and then, we get to live. But no matter what we find in DC, I know we'll be okay. Because this is how we survive. We tell ourselves that we are the walking dead. And it was a nice speech, and it was it, it again. It underlined the very point of the title, and I and I also go back to say to try to <laughs> mellow things a little bit. But it's like I I believe that this show has done an extraordinary job of the last few years, not only of demonstrating 
what the genre can do, but in also providing a lot of uh, foundation for really meaningful conversations about everything from race and gender to class issues, political issues, all sorts of conversations I've had in class and elsewhere just because of episodes of The Walking Dead. But I think that they've reached a point where they no longer have anything new to say. And if all they're now going to offer is just completely manipulative cruelty, then I don't have any reason to look at it anymore. There are pl- there's plenty of other zombie stories to look at. And we got a lot of fun movies and TV shows and other things to see. Well, one of these that I think has done everything right and is a much shorter show is the British show In the Flesh, which suggests that zombieism is something that can be cured to a certain degree. Let's hear a little scene from the first episode that kind of sets up what's going on with this character of Kieran, who recently died and came back and has now been treated. Another involuntary recount memory. You're getting more vivid. That's a good sign. It means the cognitive circuitry is connecting again. Like a computer rebooting. Maybe it means I'm not ready. No, it means the opposite. No, I don't feel ready. That's exactly why you're ready. You're feeling. It's not, not just the flashbacks. The medication, uh, all the side effects. It means your brain's responding, repairing. That's a positive. Count yourself lucky. You don't want to be a patient who doesn't respond to neurotriptyline. Where do they go? The ones that don't respond. We take care of them. Your parents, they're looking forward to seeing you again. (laughs) Why wouldn't they? Because I'm a zombie and I killed people. No. Kieran, what are you? Look at me. You are... I am a partially deceased syndrome sufferer. And? And what I did in my untreated state was not my fault. Good. So this show, like some of the Romero zombie films, has a nice way, and like Shaun of the Dead, has this nice way of moving from comedy to serious, dealing with serious issues, as well as kind of pointing out the absurdities of what you might have to deal with in a zombie apocalypse. What attracts you to this show? Oh, well, I, it's, it's multiple things. I've always loved a lot of British television. I'm a Doctor Who fan going way back for many years. And so it, when you start gravitating to one sort of thing, you tend to discover other things. I was just more aware of a lot of stuff going on where maybe some people might not be. I think these days the lines have blurred a lot more now, so people are uh, more likely to find shows from other countries, too. But I just I was instantly drawn in because it was supposed to be uh, a relatively fresh and new take on the zombie genre. I, I instantly saw that it was. It was just excellent all around. The characters, the, the casting, the writing was brilliant. The show looked beautiful. It's set in this, this mournful little distant Welsh town and everything. There's just such absolutely beautiful, stark landscapes throughout the, the, the series, which themselves are... A metaphor. I mean, the very setting of the show is this almost limbo existence of this small town where everything seems trapped in a fog and, and no one has any prospects of anything else. The very fact that the show also explores issues of sexuality by using the zombie metaphor, both subtly and directly. I mean, one character is gay, and the very idea of uh, a very conservative community 
trying to deal with the fact that members of their community are gay and the, the religious context of it. There's so much to recommend this show. I know another aspect of it that I, recommend, that I would say is to recommend it is that the, the religious aspect of it doesn't even rear its head in the way you'd expect. Like, naturally, there are people who are fiercely religious who are against the idea of, of homosexuality, who are also against the idea of these zombies being reinserted back into their regular lives. Like, we can't trust these things. These are mm-hmm. demons from hell. We can't do that. And yet what's also interesting is the show depicts that the zombies themselves, in regaining their personalities, have started to construct their own sense of religion, that they are perhaps better than the humans, that they are the second coming, that they represent a gift from God. It's a beautiful way of exploring the concept of faith and how human beings try to construct meaning in their lives by having the zombies themselves seek that meaning. There's so much in this show that's worth any zombie fan's time. The, The most horrible part of it, though, is that it ran two very short series ends on a, on a really open cliffhanger, and there are currently no prospects for the show to yeah. continue or conclude. So I, I always tell people, <laughs> you've got you to gotta be prepared for that, but I still would suggest they see it. Yes, it's brilliant. And it, it explores a, a lot, because you, you mentioned about a, a gay character and also these zombies being reinserted into the community, but at its heart, what it's looking at is the sense of the other and our fear of the other. and. Yeah. Some of the most there was there's some very funny moments like when he gets reinserted back at home, uh, zombies can't eat because they don't have any digestive system. And his mom serves him dinner and he's like, I can't eat this. And she's like, well, can't you pretend? And, you know, (laughs) he like he like he goes like, oh, yummy. And so you have this very lighthearted kind of sense of reintegrating into society. But then later on, there are these vigilante groups that go around and they pull family members who have this, what do they call them, partially deceased syndrome, yes. and take PBS them out suffers. and execute them in the streets. Yes. That was horrific. Yeah, and, and uh, you were talking before about Land of the Dead and some things potentially becoming more relevant later. I would suggest that In the Flesh, which is probably already a part of a component of, of it at the time, but it's a few years back now, is particularly relevant in the wake of Brexit and the attitude toward refugees from other mm-hmm. places. Just look at the zombies desperately trying to find a home in a community. Of course, in this case, you know, in, in some cases, actually returning to their own families. But it's a great metaphor for the displaced, the disenfranchised, and the unwanted. It's just a, it's a very powerful show. I think it's one of the, the finest modern examples of how the zombie genre can be used to comment on current events and on uh, social issues. Yes, and one of the interesting things is is when they're trying to reintegrate the zombies back into the society, they give them makeup to make them look a little Mm -hmm. more human. They give them contacts. And again, it's this sense, okay, if they look different, there's no way they can be accepted. So we have to try and make them look superficially like us so that Right. will feel comfortable. And then the ones that choose to embrace what they really yes. are, are, you know, are defiant in the face of that kind of conformist kind of approach. Yes. All right. Well, this is a brilliant show. Please go out, check it out. Maybe if enough of us watch it and demand for the, the season, <laughs> the next season to come back to be finished, we'll get it. And finally, I just want to go out with something that's not a film, not a TV series. It is a film, but I'm ignoring the film version of it, which is uh, well Mac, done. Max Brooks's brilliant, brilliant book, World War Z. 
I want to play a little bite from my 2012 interview with Max Brooks about his book where he explains what he wanted to do with it. Well, I think zombies are a great tool for exploring societal collapse. And I really wanted to explore that. I think the world has become so interconnected uh, that all you have to do is pull a few of these threads and the whole tapestry unwinds. And so I wanted to explore that. I wanted to explore what would happen when the global supply chain is cut. How do you feed 100 million people? Uh, what happens when communication breaks down between two countries that have nuclear weapons? Um, what happens when the military sets up to fight one kind of war and is suddenly confronted with another? Uh, so there was a lot of issues I wanted to tackle, and I thought zombies are a great way of doing that. So Arnold, this book is fascinating, and it has this real-world quality to it about what could happen to the world's infrastructure if we were hit by a zombie apocalypse. Why is it important for people to look at this book and read it? Well, the book is one of the best works of zombie fiction ever written. The level of detail is extraordinary. Brooks did such incredible, in-depth research into things as varied as weapon usage and uh, local politics, and so much that lends, the $5 word, but lends a verisimilitude to the whole thing that just makes the moments where everything goes crazy and you get your Romero-style zombies in there, it, it doesn't matter because you, he has constructed a fully real world. And again, like anything else, it's really just an exploration of ourselves and our world how prone we are to fighting with one another, how likely we are to see other countries as the other, as we've just been discussing. And there are so many little stories throughout, little bits and pieces, anecdotal stuff that shed a spotlight, shed a light on different aspects of human nature throughout. It's a beautiful piece of work. It was not well served by the film meditation, that's true, although granted, you know, there are people that enjoy that movie, but it's just a very different thing. It's basically shares little but the title. And, uh... In today's, in today's media world, it would seem that World War Z would be best suited to being, say, like a Netflix series or something like that. And who's to say that, that might not happen in the future? That, that certainly could. Right now, I know they're doing World War Z 2, the, the movie sequel, so I guess that's going to be what we're getting on film for a while. But I, I certainly recommend the book. It's an extraordinary piece of work, and it really shows a great deal of depth of thought in everything that he did. Well, and it's set up as there's a character who's going out to interview people after World War Z has occurred and getting these mm-hmm. individual stories of different things that have happened all around the globe. So it lends itself, it would lend itself very well to some sort of episodic series where you would get kind of a different chapter each time you visit it. And that was one of the things that was so brilliant about it. And it's interesting because it gives you these interesting takes on global politics where you might expect a big country like the United States to survive the zombie apocalypse better than a smaller country. But what Brooks does is he goes into political realities about why certain countries won't work well together or why a certain country's infrastructure will fall more readily than a smaller country's. And it's so fascinating because it feels very rooted in a real world. Absolutely. It's like I was saying, it may be one of the most realistically crafted of these kind of stories I've ever seen. It totally deserves the reputation it has as a result. For people who are listening, too, it's worth noting. I mean, like we talk about zombies, and I've often talked about how I feel it's a genre that lends itself best to a visual medium because it just seems that that's where it works best. But there's such a great deal of zombie literature out there. Mm-hmm. And that happened kind of late in the game compared to other 
literary horror traditions, but there are some great works out there. But World War Z is absolutely at the top of the list. Then there's everything else. <laughs> but at the very, very top of it, you could, you could start with World War Z and see how it's done. And it also has a brilliant audiobook. So if you yes. want to be listening while you're doing something else, it they have a variety of actors who do each of the individual stories. Superbly done and really sucks you into that world so well. Well, we've come to another end of a zombie discussion. I so enjoy speaking with you because you share this zombie attraction that I have. So uh, thank you very much for talking. Uh, where can people find you and your podcast? And uh, is there anything that you have that's just come out that you want to promote? Well, uh, they can find me on Twitter at Dr. The Dead. And right now you can either join in and, uh, and support me in my uh, assessment of the latest Walking Dead or <laughs> yell at me for not knowing what I'm talking about. That's going to happen for weeks to come. And uh, you can find my podcast, Dr. The Dead, uh, where you can also do that, on iTunes or at g2vpodcast.com, where my co-host and producer Scott Woodard and I do a number of things. I will plug a couple things. Uh, I also have a small press publishing company. We're about to put out a book that's a complete essay collection, just an insane, wild, eclectic look at the entire, all the Kirk-era Star Trek adventures. <laughs> uh, with a different writer writing about every different individual episode or film or animated series episode. It's a, it's a bizarre collection that just has a lot of new perspectives on Star Trek. It comes out in a few weeks. It's called Outside In Boldly Goes, and you can get it directly from atbpublishing.com. And uh, Scott and I also just recently had a book published that is very similar to the book I wrote years ago on zombie cinema called Zombie Mania. This book is called Cinema and Sorcery. And it's our exhaustive guide to the entire history of sword and sorcery and fantasy film. And it features, 80, uh, it features 50 movies and chapters with full in-depth information, but it also has an index of like over 400 movies from the whole history, from silent film to the modern era. So if you're tired of zombies, you can always <laughs> switch over to sword and sorcery for a while. Well, we're going to have to have a sword and sorcery zombie film then to cross over. There, there are a couple. There are a few. Dang. All right. I don't know those. I'll have to look into them. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, it's a pleasure. Anytime. They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. Thanks for listening to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. If listening to Cinema Junkie is becoming something of an addiction, please consider supporting the podcast at kpbs.org slash feedthejunkie. And if you're looking for a cheaper way to support the show, just leave us a review the next time you're downloading an episode on iTunes. So, till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident Cinema Junkie. We should get out there. No, 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 we should stay inside. Come on, we can take them. The, the man said to stay indoors. Fuck the man. Look, as long as they're out there and we're in here, we're safe. The attackers can be stopped by removing the head or destroying the brain. Any zombies out there? Don't say that. What? That. What? That. The dead word, don't say it. Why not? Because it's ridiculous. Are there any out there?
Oh, got out. Zombie. 